Our second reading this morning comes to us from uh, the second letter that Paul uh, wrote to the church in Corinth, and we'll be reading from chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Listen for God's word to you. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this generous act of giving. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you haven't uh, connected the dots yet, uh, the, uh, the, the subject of our new sermon series is going to be on stewardship. And if that makes you happy, that's great. But uh, my guess is some of you are groaning internally because who likes stewardship sermons? And um, in my experience, almost nobody likes stewardship sermons. And I just told you we're going to be doing them for a while. So actually, we're going to be doing this all through Lent. Because I thought since nobody likes Lent and since nobody likes um, stewardship sermons, this is like, you know, a Reese's cup or something, you know, chocolate and peanut butter. They, they just go naturally together. So, so we're going to be looking at um, this, uh, this block of scripture from, from Paul that he wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, uh, when, I, when I went to seminary, I studied something called Worship in the Reformed Tradition. And the Presbyterian Church is one of many church, uh, one, one of many branches of the Christian movement that uh, stands in the Reformed Tradition. The Methodists are kind of got one foot in the Reformed Tradition and one foot in the Anglican Tradition, so, so um, they're kind of a hybrid. Uh, but, but I think what, what I'm going to talk about uh, now is, is complementary with what the Methodists teach as well. So um, uh, I studied worship in the Reformed tradition, and the Reformed tradition has the idea that, that, um, that we need to kind of be uh, skeptical about what people do in church, that, that when, when Christians get together, they need to make sure that they're on firm ground when they do so. And the fact that we did it yesterday or we did it 500 years ago doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. We should always be looking at, looking at uh, what we do as Christians and asking ourselves, is that in fact uh, what we're supposed to do? And so our motto uh, in the Reformed Church is the, the Reformed Church um, always being reformed according to the Word of God. So we say, we, we need to know, not just because my uncle did it this way or because my grandparents did it this way, but actually because God calls us to do it this way. So, so we have this idea that our scripture is, our, our, our worship is informed by the, the Word of God. So, if you look at your program, you'll see that throughout our worship service, we periodically have what's called a scriptural warrant. It's the little part in italics where we say, why do we do that? Or who gives us the authority to do that? So, for example, when we're called to worship, we we have authority to call you to worship. I mean, 
you know, if you stop and think about it, God is the, 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 the king of the universe. And would you just waltz into his throne room if you were not invited? Well, you are invited. How do you know you're invited? Because he says so. And so we look at a, we look at, um, scripture to tell us so. It's not simply because the pastor said it was okay. It was because the word of God tells us that we are in fact invited into God's presence. Uh, our call to worship. You don't want to hear me tell you you're forgiven for that thing that's been plaguing you, right? You don't want to hear me say that because I'm just another person and I've just got my own opinions. You want to know on scriptural authority from the word of God that you are in fact forgiven. So we use these warrants throughout our worship service and one of the places we use them is in the invitation to the offering. So uh, we routinely use um, we use uh, invitations uh, that come from this block of scripture we're going to be studying today. Sometimes they come from the New Testament. Um, Jesus himself uh, is is uh, said to have preached more about money than about hell and um, prayer put together. I haven't done the math, but I've I've read that, and it kind of sounds about right. But um, but uh, but we sometimes use the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. Um, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, they need a little bit more contextualization because they were under the law, that there were certain requirements that they had to fulfill in terms of offering tithes and so forth. But Christians don't uh, don't live under the law. We live under grace. So uh, they need more contextualization. We can't simply just take those verses out of out of context and use them as a scriptural warrant. But the the vast majority I use myself are from this block of scripture we're going to be studying. And one of the things I'm, I'm excited about, and maybe I'm the only one in the room who's excited, is we're actually going to spend some time looking at this block of scripture instead of just taking a, a verse here and a, a phrase there and just kind of cherry picking them and dropping them on you and saying, now give us some money. Um, we're actually going to spend some time studying uh, what what the scriptures actually teach. So that makes this a very a theological sermon series. And so if you're into theology, that's great. But if you're not, um, maybe the reason is because you don't see yourself as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you're here today because you're going to hear it. You're going to have a chance to hear what uh, Christians believe and what Christians are called to do. And this will give you a chance to say, but do they practice what they preach? And you can actually look at us and say, well, you know, I heard what you guys are supposed to be doing, and I don't see a lot of that being lived out. So this is a chance for you to decide, are Christians really, really um, uh, just a lot of talk and no action or not? So if you're not a, if you're not a follower of Christ, that's great. Nothing, nothing we're going to talk about today applies to you. Um, it only applies to Christians. But this does give you the opportunity to see, does it... Do Christians act like it applies to them? So that's what we're going to do. And um, so, so let me catch up. Where am I supposed to be? So stewardship, worship in the Reformed tradition, and Second Corinthians. So and it's a theological um, uh, series. So, so so far, there we go. Um, these are very helpful to me. So, <laughs> as you can see, um, and I think most of us uh, today we're going to talk about generosity. Uh, the first uh, seven verses that we're going to look about, Paul talks about generosity, and I think a lot of people like to be generous. That that we like to be generous, but we put a little asterisk next to that, which is I like to be generous if I can, right? That you can't get blood from a stone, right? I don't have anything to give. I don't have any time. There's nothing I can contribute. Sorry, I would love to be generous. And I actually do like to be generous, but I can't always do it. So I think most people today enjoy being generous. And the only problem is that that pesky little asterisk up in the corner that we can't always do what we want. And my guess is it was exactly the same 
in the first century in the church in Corinth. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, let me let me talk a little bit about Corinth. Um, so just to kind of give us some background, why I think that that they felt the same way about generosity that we do. So first of all, where is Corinth? Um, Corinth, you may remember last summer we, we looked at Paul's missionary journey and we, we talked about Greece. So this is the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And up in the northwest corner, there is Greece and um uh, so here I'm zooming in on that a little bit. So this is Greece and the Aegean Sea there, and a little tiny bit of um, of uh, Asia Minor on that side. So um, so Corinth is down in the southern part of Greece. It's uh, it's um, on one of them peninsulas. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. The one that begins with a P. So um, so uh, so that's where Corinth is, and uh, Paul. Uh, is talking to them in this letter about the gift for the believers in Jerusalem that that a year ago or sometime in the previous year they had they had had this idea it would be a great thing if we made if if we collected some money and gave it to the people in Jerusalem and uh we don't know exactly the circumstances of the the people in Jerusalem but they were hard pressed for for various reasons uh, that we don't we don't have access to today um, we, we know some of the reasons. We don't know which ones inspired the people in Corinth. But they heard about these people who were in trouble. And they said, let's raise some money for them. And so they did that. But it, it kind of sputtered out. They had this great start, but then it kind of went nowhere. So so uh, Paul is writing them um, in the middle of this kind of um, situation where they were generous, but then the asterisk kind of took over. And they found that they weren't able to to contribute to this offering. They weren't able to complete what they had set out. And that's the context where Paul is operating from. So so they are much like us, that sometimes they, they would love to be generous, but they don't always find it's possible to do so. Uh, something else about we know about the church in Corinth is that they would have been very poor. In the Roman Empire, probably 90% of people, scholars tell us, 90% of the population lived at subsistence level. And, and by subsistence, I mean they literally did not know if they would have enough food to get through the day, that that was 90% of the people in Rome. And 90% of the other people would be what we would call poor. In fact, we would probably call all of them poor because they lacked so many of the things we take for granted. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have, um, you know, antibiotics. They didn't have jet travel or smartphones or anything else that we take for granted. So we would call them all poor. But but even by their own standards, probably uh, nine, 99 out of 100 would be uh, frankly poor, and 90% of those would be really um, in desperate circumstances. So, so it's a poor, it's a poor world, and the Corinthians were a part of that. And so Paul understands, he understands that asterisk, right? You, you set out to do something, and uh, circumstances, your, your own poverty, whatever it was, got in the way. And so the, the project was kind of, it just sputtered to a halt. And so Paul writes them this letter because he wants them to know something that he has found out. And so he says, he begins his letter saying, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. He's giving them new news about something that's happened in Macedonia. So where is Macedonia? Well, Macedonia is due north of Corinth. It's up in the, um, uh, it's the northern part of Greece. So uh, it's a region. It's not a city. Corinth is a city. Macedonia is a region, but it includes places like Thessalonica and Philippi, places we talked about last uh, summer in, in the series about Greece. 
Um, and in fact, when you read the letter to the Philippians, that's one of the Macedonian churches. When you read the letters to the Thessalonians, uh, those are uh, Macedonian churches, just as the Corinthian letters are to to uh, a Greek church uh, in southern Greece. So he says, I want you to know what's been going on in Macedonia. Well, what's what's been going on in Macedonia? And he says, they're being tested by uh, many troubles. So what were the troubles? We don't know specifically. Um, probably something to do with poverty. One of the things about, about poverty in that era is there wasn't a social safety net. And frankly, if there was a social safety net, it would not have applied to Christians. It would have been administered probably by the, by, by the Roman government. I mean, uh, when I say social safety net, I don't mean um, uh, social capital. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But it, suppose there was government uh, a welfare program in that era, which there wasn't. But if there was, it would have been administered by the Roman government, and Christians would have been excluded for it because one of the things the Roman government was doing in those days was establishing something called the imperial cult, which meant that the emperor, or actually technically his father, the, the previous emperor, was a god. And you had to subscribe to this theology that, that the previous emperor was the divine Caesar Augustus. And then the, the idea for that was Tiberius, his successor, wanted people to start thinking about him as having a direct connection to, to God so that people would, would do what he said. It was basically a way of shoring up his power base. And so throughout the Roman world, and particularly in the eastern part of the Roman world, there was this idea of the imperial cult. So even if the Roman Empire had uh, social welfare programs, which it didn't, they would have excluded Christians because they were opposed to saying, I subscribe to the, the thinking of the Roman Empire in this area. They would have said, well, then you don't qualify for anything we would give you. Realistically, they were probably cut off from, from their own social uh, networks as well um, because because of the nature of being a Christian. They would have had to go against the family tradition of, of being uh, uh, worshipers of Mars or of Jupiter or whoever. So they would, have, they would have gone in one day and said, you know, I've become a Christian. They're kind of like Jews. They're a little bit different. I'm a little fuzzy on all the details, but, but they're kind of like Jews. And the, their family would have said, well, I have no son. I have no daughter. You know, you're dead to me. And that probably would have happened a lot. So when, when Paul says they're being tested by many troubles, they understand. They've been through a lot of those troubles themselves in Corinth. And he says, and they're very poor. And the Corinthians probably said, oh yeah, yeah, I understand poverty. And if it's poor here in Corinth, it's even worse in Macedonia. Corinth is at least a trading center. So there's some, there's some trickle down from the wealthy here, but it's even worse in Macedonia. So Paul says they're tested by troubles and they're very poor. People in this church would have said, oh yeah, I totally get that. And then Paul says, but they're filled with abundant joy. And my guess is the people in Corinth would have said, you know what, I get that too. You know, my life has not become easier because I became a Christian, but it's better that I actually have peace with God and and I have joy. And I think they would have said, yeah, okay, I get that. I understand how that would happen. But it's what Paul says next that would have surprised them. Because what Paul says next is he says that those two things, the joy of the Lord and their poverty, have overflowed in rich generosity. And this is not what anyone would have expected. It would have been the, the joy of their Lord made them willing to part with what they had. That the joy of the Lord and their wealth resulted in rich generosity. But what Paul says is the joy of the Lord and their poverty resulted in rich generosity. How could that be? How, how could that possibly happen? Paul says... 
Paul says, I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. These are people who don't have two dimes to give together, to rub together. How can they give generously? And I don't know. He doesn't tell us. He simply says they, they gave far more than they could afford. How did that happen? What, what occurred? We don't know. I have to believe it was a miracle. And the reason I believe that is because Paul says, as we'll discover, Paul says that offering is going with Titus, who's bringing this letter to you. So the offering is right there. Check it out yourself and ask yourself, could the Macedonians possibly have given that from their own their own resources? And we know that whatever it was, however much it was, I mean, I don't even know what a drachma was worth in those days or whatever. I don't know what would have been a big offering. But whatever it was, it impressed the Corinthians. We know it impressed the Corinthians because they kept this letter. And they circulated. When it began to wore out, wear out, they made copies of it. And they made extra copies and they gave those to other churches. And over the next couple of hundred years, the, the second letter to the Corinthians became a part of what is now the New Testament. Because they said... <laughs> Things like that convinced them that this was not just a letter from their friend Paul. This was a letter that God had inspired Paul to write. And so they held on to it. And so I have to believe some kind of miracle occurred in Macedonia. That by being generous, when the Macedonians heard about this offering and they said, we want to give to it too, something happened. Paul said, I didn't believe it. I said, no, you people are so poor, you can't possibly contribute to this. And they said, oh no, please let us. Again and again, they had to beg Paul. Wouldn't it be great if preachers had to be begged to take money, right? They had to beg Paul for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. So I think a miracle happened. I would love to know the details. I would love it if it was spelled out. But Paul's referring to something. He says, you should be aware of this. You should be aware of what happened here. So what, what is, what, what am I saying? If a miracle occurred, does that mean I support the prosperity gospel? You know the prosperity gospel? It's the idea that if you give God a dollar, he'll give you ten back. No. That's exactly not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, if you give away a dollar, God may give 10, not to you, but to whatever it is you're doing. So this is not the prosperity gospel, and don't believe the people on TV who tell you that. Um, it's, it's not true, and it's not the gospel. So I'm not, I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel, and neither is Paul. Paul's saying, though, that something happened in Macedonia, that when they were generous, they had nothing to give, and they were generous, and something amazing happened, and the offering traveled with the letter down to Corinth, where they were impressed by it. So is this a prosperity gospel? No, it's not. But the other thing is this is for Christians, right? I think everybody should be generous, and I think God will tend to support people's generous impulses. But this is a specific teaching for Christians. Paul says that they did even more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. He says their first action was to dedicate themselves to the service of Jesus. They said, we want to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. And that's a risky proposition, as you know. Uh, as you heard in the, in the, uh, the gospel reading today, that's a risky thing because Jesus might tell you, okay, here's what I want you to do. If you're going to follow me, step one is to sell everything you have 
and give the money to the poor. We know what happened to one person because it's, it's told in three accounts. There's three accounts of it in the New Testament. So this rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, great, here's how. So maybe Jesus will tell you that. But the one thing he will certainly tell you to do is to follow him. And so whatever it is he tells you to do, he may tell you to be generous a little bit. He may tell you to be generous a lot. But Jesus will tell you, follow me. So Jesus will tell you to follow you, follow, follow him. And he will, Paul, Paul gives us reason to believe that one of the things Jesus will tell us to do is to be generous because, because this is ultimately the foundational spiritual gift. Paul talks to the Corinthians and we haven't had the, we don't have the context here. I'm just going to sketch out. Um, if you've read the, the first Corinthian, the, the first letter to the Corinthians, this, this one is one of a series of correspondence that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And in the previous one, he wrote, he wrote a lot extensively about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are things that God, uh, equipped them with. Sp- special, supernatural bu- abilities that God equipped them with. And they were very conversant in the language of spiritual gifts. If you've ever been married and heard the, 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 or gone to a marriage and you, um, you hear the language about if I speak with the tongues of angels, um, and if I know all prophecies and, and mysteries, um, but have not love, I am a noisy gong. If you ever hear that, that comes from the first letter where Paul is saying there, there was this church in Corinth that was very concerned about those things because God had done some amazing things there. God had given people uh, special linguistic gifts. He'd given them special knowledge. And Paul says, you know those spiritual gifts. This is one too. That, that giving is a spiritual gift. And the, the reason we know that is because God gave those things. God gave the gift of language. God gave the gift of prophecy. God gave all the, of healing of all the other spiritual gifts. God gave them to the Corinthians because God is ultimately generous. They were God's to hold on to or not, and God chose to give them away. So Paul says, since you excel in these, your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. It doesn't mean you can work up to it necessarily, but it means you won't know if you have it until you try. You won't know if this is an area of your giftedness until you try. So he says, I want you to excel in this, the same way I want you to excel in all those other spiritual gifts. But you won't know unless you try. So, what should we do? Well, we should practice generosity. And I understand, you know, I have not always been a preacher. And I understand that's exactly what you would expect the preacher to say. So if you can't be generous with this church, if you're saying, yeah, you know, churches are always after your money, you know, I, you know, I get that. So find someplace else, someplace that you do trust and be generous there because Jesus wants you to be generous. And God is a generous God. And you may be able to participate in something that, that Paul didn't even explain something that simply amazed him and he wanted to share it with the Corinthian church. You may be part of something like that. If you can't give to a church, there are any number of good charities. The the youth in our church and I and um, their teacher there, there she is, Lonnie, we're reading a book by a guy named Scott Harrison who who uh, is the is the founder of a charity called Charity Water. He's got an amazing story, and if you've never heard the story about Charity Water, you you should try that. And there are ample numbers of nonprofits and and do-gooder agencies around the world. Find one you trust and be generous in that. But I want to ask you. In fact, I've got two things I want to ask you to do. The first one is 
to come back next week. Because, because I want you to see what happens. Paul is not done. He's still talking to the Corinthians, right? And he said, he said this thing that, that he's asked the, um, the, the, he, he wanted the Corinthians to know about, but he does not tell them to replicate that experiment. He doesn't say give more than you have. So I want to talk about that next week, what it is he does say, because he does not say you should give more than you have. But the other thing I want you to do is I want you to consider our church as a candidate for your generosity. You should be receiving in the mail in the next day or two, you should be receiving a letter from the church, uh, the, the stewardship team, because they put together a letter that is basically laying out the case. Why should you be generous through Jewel Lake Parish? And so we, we make the case as well as we can in a letter uh, why you should be generous here. And so I invite you uh, to do so, but I certainly ask you to read the letter. Um, so, so read that letter and come back next week. Be generous somewhere because generosity is the foundation of all the spiritual gifts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and we thank you for whatever it was that happened in Macedonia, um, something that impressed the Corinthian church, something that impressed Paul, and something that may yet happen um, when we open up our hearts to be generous with our time or our money. Lord, I pray for um, the this church as we as we go about the stewardship campaign that you would help us to understand how best we can we can be um, managers of the of the resources you've given us. And I pray these things to Christ our Lord. Amen.